0: how are you going?
1: Good, how are you?
0: I am very well. And, of course, Raphael Kalev
2: is here as well. How are you doing, a rambling just is in the house. He is
0: indeed. And we're very fortunate to have someone who who has wandered into the studio. It is Julie Philitello. Julie. Hi, everyone. And our theme, I've just broken total ranks with, with what we normally do. And uh, we're here today, obviously, to... Well, we're here to... Our theme for today is, uh, well, disability and edu- education. Now, recently, Julie, you've uh, you you just you had a a uh, well, you, you've organised a protest at the Depar- Department of Education to talk about the parlour state of uh, disability and education. What 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 was the, the what was the need to uh, organise the protest?
3: Yes, that was last Friday, Finn. Well, I guess it was born out of despair and frustration at the many, many years of uh, discrimination and mistreatment of students with disabilities. that just doesn't seem to be getting any better.
2: What sort of disabil- What sort of uh, discrimination and stigma are you talking about within education and disability, Julie?
3: So there's a whole lot of things that are happening and have been happening for a long, long time, and that is um, the failure to just give kids the supports they need, the refusal to let them attend school, um, the refusal to let them attend full-time like the other kids, um, suspensions and expulsions on the basis of behaviours that are linked with their disabilities, um, all sorts of things that have been highlighted before by various commissions and ombudsmen, and it's just not getting any better, unfortunately.
1: And what? Sorry. how many
3: and what sort of people' with disabilities is it
1: just autistic people live with autism or is it other? Disabilities.
3: Well, it's interesting you ask that because I guess um, over the years I would say that um, a lot of the clients I work with do have autism now as compared with, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But really my clients have um, a lot of cognitive disabilities like autism, ADHD. Um, we have cerebral palsy, physical disabilities, paraplegia, deafness, vision impaired. Um, but, yeah, there are a lot of autistic kids that are, are getting probably treated worse than others at the moment, which is really quite sad.
1: Um, and in your protest, what sort of things did you entail? How how did you come across what you wanted to put across in the... Um, the?
3: Yep, so we had um, a number of speakers that were representing sort of different problem areas. So we had um, parents that had had to sue the, the Department of Education just to get supports for their kids. We had um, kids themselves with disabilities who uh, were speaking about how difficult it's been for them, one who was using a communication device um, and who wasn't really allowed to communicate through school. We even had an ex-teacher who um, used to work at um, Bendigo SDS where they had cages and they used to restrain and lock up kids. So we did have a wide variety of people speaking and they all had the same very sad and very distressing story to tell.
1: And is this just a modern um, experience or has it been happening for many years?
3: Look, it's been happening for decades, actually. But I think that probably uh, because of social media, parents are getting together and and students are getting together to share their experiences. And um, it's become even more shocking in that way because some of the terrible things that have been happening have been shared and other people saying, yes, that's happening to my child too. So there's a lot of abuse, restraint and um, false imprisonment of kids as well. So it's not, it's not, nothing's really changing. I just think the issues are being spoken about a bit more. And what
2: are actually um, behaviours of concern are we talking about?
3: So, some kids, um, particularly those with uh, ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or autism, if they're not treated professionally and competently, they're going to um, react really poorly. And so, for example, if you've got a child with autism who you know likes routine and then you give them a change at the last minute and don't tell them, they might, you know, throw a pencil case, they might run out of the room, they might hit someone. Or if you have a sensory environment, which is just so overwhelming um, for them that they can't cope, they might have what's called a meltdown, which is when they just they lose their regulation and can't control what they do. So it's a, that is a really probably the biggest problematic area because it requires a high level of expertise, which these kids aren't getting. And then they are blamed for acting out, which is just so distressing and unfair. You now,
2: when I was actually reading about The guidelines is that from the Department of Education, there are guidelines, but one of the things that struck me is very odd. There is no requirement for the teachers to actually read the guidelines, let alone actually follow them.
3: People will think I told you to say that, but I actually didn't. Um, That's absolutely right, and that's the main problem with the Department's policies and procedures all over the place when it comes to kids with disabilities. Not only do you not even have to read them, but they're so fluffy and talk about what you can do and what you might do and what you should do. And, in fact, recently I had a regional director say that the reason that my parents didn't have the right to find out if their child was being restrained or not was because the guidelines only said they should be told and he emphasised the word should, Mr yeah, Christopher right. Thompson. And so that's the problem with these guidelines, that they are non-binding whatsoever, so they're actually quite useless.
1: Just a question. Um, in the schools, what sort of facilities do the teachers have in giving the, the, the people living with these issues medication? Is there some sort of streamline effect where they actually can administer the medica- medication to the, to the school students?
3: Well, they can administer medication if it's agreed upon. I suppose what we uh, are often worried about is that teachers or principals will say to parents, you cannot bring your child back unless he's medicated. And the issue is that um, often uh, they're doing that because they haven't brought in expert assistance to actually assist... The, the disability and the behaviour. And medication is not the answer to incompetence. It's mm. it's something that, you know, paediatricians should decide upon because of illness. Well,
2: I've got to actually um, expand on this a little bit with a nice little question at the end of it.
3: Now, let's say
2: if people are going to agree medication has to be administrated uh, to a child for them to attend school. Now, that to me implies there actually has to be an individual plan for the student how do you come across an individual plan if it's only guidelines and the guidelines don't well they're only a guideline you don't have to read them but how do you develop a plan without knowing what the guidelines should be
3: Well, look, that's exactly right. So a lot of these kids don't have plans. A lot of these plans are just so all over the place um, that you may as well not have them. And look, this has been raised before by the Equal Opportunity Commission in 2012, by the Victorian Auditor General in 2012, and the Department of Education just does nothing about it. And so I still see education plans today that are just so poorly written. You know, there's nothing that's changed in the last 10 years. And you've got teachers that don't understand what a strategy is what a measurable outcome is and so they're of no use whatsoever
2: now julie off the top of your head are you able to recall in general terms what a plan was like from about 10 years ago what it it may have been written
3: so often you'll have a plan which has maybe um, some, a few goals, none of them measurable, and um, a couple of strategies um, and uh, you might have like one page to cover a child who's got multiple disabilities that needs to learn, you know, six subjects.
2: Right. And with that, that type of plan, would that be available across all teachers for that one student if they're doing six subjects or just a couple of them?
3: Well, in theory, the plan should be seen by every single teacher that teaches the child. But, you know, sometimes these plans don't even cover all the subjects anyway, so it wouldn't matter if they were given to the subject teachers. They're not covered.
2: Right. Now, when you're actually talking about developing or when there's education plans, in general terms, I would have thought that a goal, it actually has to be specific. And maybe you'd be looking at maybe... Po- about positive enforcements about what actually works and rewarding what the child actually does well as opposed to gee this person is bad we're not even going to go there
3: yeah, well, in terms of plans like for behaviour, that's exactly right. So a lot of the plans that I see, are um, you know, the goal is Johnny better behave better. And then the, the, the strategies, well, they're not really strategies. It's more like sometimes contracts. If Johnny does this once, here's the punishment. If he does it twice, there's the bigger punishment. All the research in the world tells you, and so do practicalities, these things don't work. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to matter whether education plans and behaviour plans work or not in schools. They just keep on doing the same thing. And, um, and these children actually get more traumatised and more stigmatised and the whole thing just gets worse, unfortunately.
2: Well, let's say I'm, taking, I'm going to take uh, do some advocacy on behalf of people on the autism I'm going to just call it autism because it makes my life a lot, lot easier. I don't like the word on the spectrum because how do you define a spectrum? It's autism or it's yeah, not autism. Right. It's pretty straightforward. True. Okay. Now, and this little uh, part is quite often with people with autism, they've got a specialised knowledge of one particular subject. Now, to me, that implies me thinking an education system. If you had a person who's, let's say, passionate about, let's say, English, for example, and it's really bad at science, it might be that behaviors of concern, they might only incur in a maths class or a science class. Now is, how does, um, or is there ways that the education department could actually modify the education pro system for the individual student to get access to more of the subjects which they actually were better suited to doing?
3: Yeah. I mean, look, um, principals and teachers can actually, unfortunately, do anything they like because of the autonomy of schools. And so if they say to a parent, um, even though we would say it'd be discriminatory, if they say to a parent, well, Johnny's only coming in from nine till 10, well, that's all that will happen. So of course they can do exactly what you say. And often it's interesting because if a child's showing behaviours in one class and not the other, There's a reason for that, and it's usually to do with the environment, not the child. And so you bring in um, people to do a a behaviour assessment because they can usually work out, well, hang on a second, here's what's going wrong over here. Either you're not mati- motivating him or you're treating him really badly and so you're getting behaviours. It's rarely the child. It's always the environment. So they can play up to their strengths and make things positive for them or they can make them miserable by treating them poorly and, and making, things, um, making them do things that they know will be a problem.
2: Now, I just wondering to that from a sensory overload point of view, could things like a person's aftershave and uh, perfume be triggers for behaviour?
3: Well, that's interesting because now now you're talking about um chemical sensitivity, which adults yep. have as well, yeah, so um and and that sort of thing is actually a disability under discrimination um law. so um even though I'm not a lawyer, I do know that, but um yeah that's that's right, and so if some people are um, triggered by um, certain smells or touches, you know you just find that out and you avoid it. I mean, it's actually not that hard when you've got goodwill towards the child. When you don't have goodwill, everything is hard. So what's your solution in all of this? Well, I would... <laughs> yeah, I... Um Well, I'm just trying to think of something polite to say. Um,
2: (laughs) Yes, we are on (laughs) air and it's live.
3: Well, look, there are many reports um, from 2012, let's not even go back further than that, to June 2018 that make a whole range of recommendations and they're they're not by um, people that the department considers to be ratbags like me. They're from, you know, eminent statutory authorities and they should just, you know, start by... Um, actually following those recommendations one of the last ones being actually have policies and procedures that you have to follow. Um, So there's a whole lot of um, funding um, recommendations as well for example schools are not going to be able to um, put in place the supports that kids need if the Department of Education continues to spend millions of dollars on lawyers and not um, Mm. put that money into schools. So that's a big one as well. Um, But I think in terms of the most important thing you've got to have a culture in that organisation because that organisation is um, really the most inhumane, um, you know, organisation that I've come across and the culture starts at the top and the manner in which I see families and children being treated, um, there's just no ethics or morals there. So I think um, one, the most important thing is to clean out um, the Department of Education and have um, someone at the top who believes in a very... um, uh, equal uh, human rights-based treatment of students with disabilities and has some compassion and ethics, really. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, so this might be a very good point for us actually to continue with the interview. But right now, let's go have a couple of community announcements, please.
1: Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name is Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome, and the food's great. <laughs> really healthy and nutritious. La, la, la,
2: la, 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 Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. La, la,
3: la, A 3CR supporter.
0: Hello, and we're back. It is The boldness. It is, what are we? It is about 17 past six Is I go off mic. Um, and you're with... Finn Gazem and Rafael and our guest tonight is Julie Phillips who is a disability advocate and we're talking disability and education and more specifically I guess the uh, education system the failures of the education system within in Victoria Uh, before the break we were talking about how the how the department was uh, treating treating students and Parents, when when uh, when when people do have to bring the, take these their cases to court, what does the what does the uh, educa- what's the what strategy does the education department use there?
3: Yeah, well, that's a good point, Finn, because that's, you know, an extension of the complaints process, and that's the other problem. I mean, nothing should ever have to go to court, should it? And, you know, to think of parents, um, just plain average everyday parents suing the state of Victoria is quite alarming. (laughs) And that's because when they complain at the school level, nothing happens. They put it up to the region, nothing happens. They put it to the Deputy Secretary, nothing happens. And and they've got no choice in the end if they want their child to be looked after and get an education but, but to make um, uh, legal claims. And, look, um, unfortunately, uh, the Department of Education runs um, litigation against parents like probably um, BHP would. They um, don't show any mercy. They're quite aggressive. Um, they don't seem to um, show any um, hint that this is a human rights case involving vulnerable, um, sometimes multiply disabled children. So it's really um, very unfortunate uh, that they that they have to actually run these cases, but they have to be faced with such an aggressive response as well.
0: What? Well, what? Why do you? Why do you think? Why do you think? Why do you think they're, they're so aggressive?
3: Look, again, I, th- I just think that's back to the culture. I mean, it's like the legal division almost run the whole show and um, there just doesn't seem to be anyone in charge there who is wanting to look at actually fixing the problems, you know, problems that have been um, outlined for many years. They really just want to fight for their right to mistreat students with disabilities. Why?
0: Um, why do you think that they've, they're not taking any action on any recommendations? Good question.
3: Yeah, that is a good question. Um, and look, sometimes I sort of shake my head and say, I I can't explain it because I can't imagine um, people heading up an organisation that its sole purpose is to help children having such a a really horrific attitude towards kids Um, I think a lot of it's to do with money but on the other hand they have money because the legal team has a a huge budget Um, I I actually can't explain it Finn I really can't well
2: Well, what about things like with the legal system always falling back onto legal alternatives to me that almost like it's symbolism of the old dunce's hat that used to be in the schools and really was suddenly taken away in the 70s and the 80s, or even a little bit before there, where it was actually singled out where there was punitive punishments as opposed to, yes, we have got the power, as opposed to how can we actually utilise the education system to, for the person to maybe, person with disability, maybe even getting a job after they. Have an education.
3: Yeah, well, there doesn't seem to be any thought about that, and it's interesting you use the word dunce because um, one of the uh, group of um, kids that I I feel most strongly about are kids who um, are not deemed to have capacity, so they're just left with you know hopeless goals of. Um, Uh, one of my kids had experiencing the weather conditions as a goal and making a mark on a piece of paper for about a six-year period. And because he has complex communication needs because of his autism, he's just assumed to be an idiot and... um, not even any effort put into teaching him how to communicate. So um, I—that that is another really tragic aspect of education for kids with disabilities, especially with severe autism, is that they're treated like dunces. And instead of putting everything you can to make sure that they can gain everything from an education, they're just left to one side. And so they won't get jobs. Oh, look, so, I'm, I'm,
2: I'm totally aware that they, people with autism usually won't with education so it won't end up with jobs. I think it's the figures are that 2% of people with autism actually will end up in paid employment. Fact.
1: Also, um, you might have answered this question, are you a teacher? No,
3: no, no. Oh. No, so I'm an advocate.
1: Okay. So um,
3: how many schools are having this issue so so in Oh, I, I probably couldn't give you a number, but um, let's put it this way. Um, there are new schools that are being raised with me all the time. And actually, even more frightening, there are schools that are raised with me, for example, this year that we had um, discrimination complaints against uh six months ago or five years ago and this is the the problem with the legal division and everyone settling and people things happening um undercover is because we're actually not getting any change and um we're just having uh round and round yeah round and round schools doing the same thing that um they got in trouble for before
1: it's like in the mental health system 50 years ago people stay in mental health institutions for years it's changed a little bit now, but the infrastructure is still there. And even though it's the 2000s, the modern era, you think all these these experiences that people have in mental institutions would be different but the infrastructure is still there, so the way they treat the client, the school children, are still in the dark ages.
3: Yeah, especially because you've still got special schools that have um, really horrific cultures of restrictive practices. Yeah. You've still got um, school mainstream schools that have little mini special schools on their. On their properties, and they think that that's inclusion. Right. So it's um it, it is it is it's interesting how the adult world they're getting rid of their institutions, um not the mental health ones, but you know things like uh, buildings like Q, um and psychiatric institutions. But in uh in education, you've still got the same special schools, um who really have the worst of the horrific treatment against kids. Yeah.
2: Well, is it. How many cases a year of discrimination are we actually really talking about?
3: So I guess I would lodge a complaint with the Australian Human Rights Commission about once every six weeks, wow. and and some of those cases might still be um, active in in two to three years. Wow.
2: Right. Okay. Um, in real terms, saying this that if those cases would still be active in two to three years' time, usually that would be twenty five percent of the child's education tied up in one little case.
3: Well, you know, this is the sad thing because um, sometimes by the time these things get finished, the kids have left school or exactly. um, mm-hmm. what what schools are masters of is, is making it so unbearable that the parents pull their children out and they just get homeschooled and, and they never go back because their, their experience is so appalling. So, you know, often um, the only thing that you gain sometimes by um, legal... Um, legal cases is that you might get compensation which will at least um give you some money for you to try and make up for the damage that the education department's done but it doesn't seem to be uh encouraging the department to fix the system
2: okay but okay let's say if a person wants to receive a payout um or a compensation claim is that that almost be very i think to my way i think that'd be very minimal compared to what the person may be able to have had they actually been able to work and actually had the same opportunities as other people in the community as maybe getting that the education, getting the job, the career path and other things.
3: Yep. yep, that's so, quite true.
2: So let's say if you've got let's say a fifty thousand dollar payment, okay, it's a lump sum payment, but over the course of a person's lifetime, well hello, if it's a fifty year lifetime, thousand dollars a year.
3: Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, just talking about systemic discrimination against people with disabilities generally, the um, the payouts, if you look at the courts in discrimination, disability discrimination matters, they're not nearly the same as, like, for example, if you get sexually harassed. So, again, um, people with disabilities seem to just not attract the same... Um, I don't know whether it's respect, worthiness. Um, it's just not sexy, and uh, to yeah. me, it just reflects the way the whole society regards people with disabilities.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. so, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, we're running fast out of time. If people want to, if people want to know more about, I guess what, what's going on in the education system from your point of view, what's the best way they can look at? What's the best way they can find information, Julie?
3: Um, there's, um, a website, dot Oh, I hope it's a com or an AU, and there's a Facebook page, Disability Rights Australia.
0: So just, yeah, just Google, uh, Education Rights Protest. You should be able to find it. That's how I found it. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, thanks very much for joining us, Julie.
2: Thank you very much, Julie. You're
3: welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank okay, you. now we
2: have been talking with Julie Phillips, Disability Advocate, Next up, keep listening to Completed by Lovely. This has been the truth, and that's why we're going out with a song by the Bipolar Bears, Fact or Fiction." Thank you very much. We'll be back on, I think it's the 17th of November this month. Keep listening to 3CR.
1: See you. Thank you. Bye-bye.